0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mm, Now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC.
1: Ten years from today,
2: Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode four. My guest for this episode is Julie Ingersoll. Julie is professor of religious studies at University of North Florida and the author of the book Building God's Kingdom, Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction. In this conversation, we talk about Christian Reconstruction, what it is, who some of its influential leaders are, what their political and social goals are, how their movement thinks, and what the best way to speak to a Reconstructionist might be. It's a hard topic. The movement isn't unified, but it is influential, especially in the worlds of Christian education and homeschooling. Professor Ingersoll does a great job fielding my questions and trying to contextualize it all. You can find her book at your local bookstore, or you can support the show by following the links in your show notes. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. My guest this week is Professor Julie Ingersoll. She is Professor of Religious Studies at University of North Florida and the author of the book Building God's Kingdom, Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction. Welcome to the show, Julie.
2: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad I'm able to talk to you about this area of expertise that you have. We've actually met before, so I'm happy to be able to talk to you again. I think the best place to start is to define Christian Reconstruction or what is sometimes called Christian Dominionism.
2: Okay, I'm not sure I would use Reconstruction and Dominionism as exactly interchangeable, and we okay. can talk about that. Sure. But Christian Reconstruction uh, is a movement. It's not it. It's not a particular denomination. Um, you find the, people who uh, subscribe to this perspective in a number of different American Protestant, mostly denominations, um, and it it dates to the 19, 1950s and really in the 1960s when a thinker, uh, Russus John Rushduni or RJ Rushduni wrote a series of books articulating his understanding of the application of biblical law to contemporary society. Um, And then from his work, there've been a few subsequent generations of scholars who have um, applied, uh, who furthered his application of this. Um, It's broadly influential in uh, the Christian school movement and the Christian homeschool movement. Um, and I think one of the things that I try to argue in my book is that he might be the most important contemporary figure that you've never heard of. Mm. So people have been influenced by him in ways that they don't necessarily know and that they don't, wouldn't trace to him. Um, but anyway, and that's the basic argument of the book.
0: Yeah. If you could elaborate on that a little bit in particular about this figure Rushduni, as well as the way in which his influence is sort of hard to track. One thing that's sort of that you you mentioned in different parts in your book is this group may or may not be aware of the influence of Christian reconstruction.
2: One of the things I tried to do in the book was to separate out groups that identify explicitly as Christian Reconstructionists, because some do. Um, and those who are Christian reconstructionists adjacent who have Um, sort of happy relationships with Christian Reconstructionists and end up having many of the same views. And then other places where I think uh, um, beliefs and practices have developed that can be traced to Christian Reconstructionists, but have developed in parts of American culture where they aren't recognized as having a connection. Um, And the reason for that... I mean, one of the things to think about here is we rarely have knowledge of where we draw our intellectual influences from. Um, most people who are Christians know about St. <laughs> Augustine, but I could list three or four other church fathers that people have never even heard of that had profound influence on the shaping of the contemporary Christianity that we have. We And, and, prob- and there's any number of others who I couldn't name because I don't know them and they're lost to history, right? So we don't have, we don't carry with us a bibliography of the people who shaped the way that we see the world. Right. Um, and the argument I make in the book is that Reconstructionists are far more influential than is, that has been recognized. And in particular, they're influential in this kind of conservative, Republican, religious right mm-hmm. that has so much influence today.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's very much the focus of this show and of, of so much study in academia is what sort of drives these these groups that have so much sway and have sort of at least come into the spotlight in this current administration. One of the key underpinnings of Christian Reconstruction is this belief called uh, presuppositionalism. What I was shocked by when I was reading your book was just how much that mirrored my own experience at a Christian college. I went to Indiana Westland. There was a particular history professor who was very, very big on the ideas of presuppositions and taught very specific, Interesting. yeah, very specifically about um having a clear axiology, teleology, epistemology, and ontology. And then making sure that those were all, coherent with a uh, biblical Christian worldview, as he as he termed it. I wouldn't have been able to say at the time, uh, as a college freshman in 2001, um, that that was Christian Reconstruction, but I see that influence now.
2: Well, and, you know, Marston, didn't make up the idea mm. of presuppositionalism. There's mm. a whole bunch of work in philosophy on presuppositionalism that doesn't connect with any of this. Um, and in traditional reform circles, the notion of presuppositionalism is present, but Rush Duny made it the centerpiece to how he built what he understood to be a biblical worldview. And he reduced the, the system down to some very specific points that were easily popularized in the broader Christian culture. So you have theologians like Rush Duny and Francis Schaeffer talking about presuppositionalism at a theoretical level, but then you have people like um, Tim LaHaye, before he wrote the Left Behind series, Mm -hmm. wrote a series of books about sort of how to apply a Christian worldview that were written at maybe eighth grade level and targeted toward broad church audiences that were all, had their foundation in presuppositionalism that was drawn from Rajshuni. So it's not so much that he invented that idea because he didn't, it's that he made it such that it could be packaged in a popular way and taught in Christian schools and it became the the theoretical foundation for Christian education as he understood it. Um, So it made its way out into the conservative Christian culture that way, uh, his version of it.
0: What were the political and social goals of this group of people?
2: Um, the goal was really straightforward. It was to bring every aspect of culture under the lordship of Jesus Christ.
0: and to them, what did that mean? because um, that... Uh,
2: that meant the application of biblical law mm-hmm. uh, to all parts of human life. so Christian reconstructionists, first of all, it's important to understand that they they so so backing up just a little bit. Every time I talk about this or write about this at um, religion dispatches or somewhere like that, there are people who are, who are dismissive because in their view, this doesn't comport with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to recognize that throughout the history of Christianity, different, different Christians, different groups of Christians have understood the relationship between the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and the New Testament differently. So some Christians, especially contemporarily, think of the New Testament as just replacing the Old. And so they have this caricature where the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath, and the God of New Testament is a God of love, and and this kind of transformation that happens with Jesus. Aside from the deeply problematic uh, anti-Semitic undertones to that, apart from that, it's also not um, a universally embraced understanding of the relationship. So for the Christian reconstructionists, and they take this directly out of the Reformation, this isn't an obscure view. For them, the biblical text exists in one continuous revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. It's not, there's no disjuncture between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those two things are integrated. In fact, in the way that they understand the Trinity is that Jesus was present at creation in Genesis, and that's why there's a Trinity. Uh, the, and Genesis does use a plural term for God, correct? Um, right. And so they understand that to represent the presence of the three members of the Trinity at creation. So for them, the entire biblical tr- biblical text is one continuous revelation. Um, so the law provided in Deuteronomy is still applicable to contemporary world. Um, it isn't superseded by the New Testament in the way that some Christians think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a very different version of God. It does incorporate, you know, a God who advocated um, uh, killing all the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 20, right? It gives us this kind of, this. it does give us this wrathful version of God, um, and Christian Reconstructionists believe that that's part of the revelation of God's character. Um, so the, they think of the entire new, the hot, entire biblical text as as still applicable to how we should understand our society, our culture, our families, our work life. Everything about human life should be shaped by the principles embedded in the both Old and New Testaments of the Bible.
0: Mm. So I would imagine that they—that doesn't mean a, a literal application of, say, the practice of polygamy to them like that it is exemplified in in, in places in the Old Testament, right? And that I mean that's what I—that's what I want to highlight, yeah, because of the fact that they wish to establish their version of biblical law. They have a number of particular ideas in mind about what that means, correct? Well,
2: of course, as does everyone, right? Um, so they would say that the polygamy that is discussed in the Bible is not put there for us to emulate, but the but the marital relationship to be emulated is Adam and Eve, one man and one woman, and that 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 sin entered the world, and one of the results of that were the examples of polygamy um, that you see throughout the Bible. So they don't see that as a as a, a standard for marriage.
0: Right. That it was one of many. Possible examples of the ways in which uh, someone may want to institute something That they deem as biblical
2: But they do um, for example take very literally the commandments to execute homosexuals and incorrigible Mm -hmm. teenagers Um, So it's not just that they pick and choose the things that seem nice (laughs) Um, Yeah Although I think one of the things I write about in the book is that I, because, you know, I'm not the first person to write about Christian Reconstructionism or Dominionism. We can get back to that. But one of the, one of the things that I was concerned about when I, you know, because you would read um, lots of uh, articles which mentioned Rushdani, and they always mentioned those two things. Uh, Rushdani, who advocated the execution of homosexuals and incorrigible teenagers. And he did. Um, but it, that was so graphic. That people would never move beyond it and look at the broader world that he envisioned, and it 's not to suggest that that would that the execution that those death penalties aren't terrible or that the broader world he envisions is somehow better, but it's I think more troubling because uh, I still even I, I used to say this um, uh, easily, but I still believe that it's unlikely that our society will crumble to the point where we have a death penalty for homosexuality and incorrigible teenagers. I still think Mm -hmm. that's unlikely. But Rush also wanted to undermine public education to the point of eliminating it and replacing it with Christian education. And that is actually not only something that may well happen, it is underway. Mm, Um, We see it happening all the time. So I thought we weren't paying enough attention to the to the day to day implications of this worldview that were really problematic because we would only look at the um, extreme stuff that it grabs your attention, um, but the dismantling of public education is a problem.
0: Right. Let's actually segue to that because I think that's one of the most interesting and troubling sorts of aspects of Christian Reconstructionist activity is the way in which they work within government uh, and education in order to undermine it. That's something that is has been of greater concern given the presence of someone like Betsy DeVos as secretary of the Department of Education because she has established ties to those types of movements. Um, I'm not sure whether they, they are specifically Christian reconstructionists, but they are pro-Christian education, very much so. So let's start with education and the way in which Christian Reconstructionists approach public education and wanting it to be dismantled to the point where it's not really a viable option, and how they also perpetuate their beliefs and practices through homeschooling.
2: So the way in which they understand the Bible to be applicable to all of life is dependent on this framework that they call either um, sphere sovereignty or uh, the other term is escaping me. They call it sphere sovereignty. Um, And by that, they mean that God has delegated authority to three human institutions. And those are the civil government, the family and the church government. And each of those institutions has very specific responsibilities and limitations to its authority. And the civil government's authority in this framework is to punish evildoers. Um, That is, you know, to punish criminals and protect property. Uh, But that's it. Everything else falls to one of those other two spheres of authority. And a lot of authority in in this system falls to families. Um, the economy, for example, is, is part of what a family is supposed to do because families exercise dominion in the world. That is, um, bring the world, bring all aspects of life under the lordship of Christ. Uh, and one of the ways in which humans do that is work. So, so work and economics are under the authority of the family. And importantly, the role of education is under the authority of the family. And the Reconstructionist view the civil government has no authority or responsibility. And insofar as it's intervening in the education of children, it's it's involved in tyranny, according to Christian Reconstructionists. Um, The same with the church, Uh, Christian Reconstructionists, so lots of Christian schools were founded by churches uh, and they did this under sort of Reconstructionist theory and philosophy, but Reconstructionists don't think that that's the ideal setup for a Christian school, um, because Christian schools should be under the auspices of families. So they should be independent from ecclesiastical authority. Uh, And it's how we initially got the Christian schools. And then ultimately, the culmination of that really is the homeschool movement, right? Because education is the purview of the family. So other institutions are supposed to keep their fingers out of it.
0: And homeschooling, uh, like there are entire advocacy groups dedicated to things like instances of abuse and lots of other. It's a sensitive topic that I'm not nearly as well versed in as, as many other people that, that can speak to this. However, in your experience in, in examining the ways in which Reconstructionists create these homeschools or they, they choose to homeschool their children, do they, al- they also end up using Reconstructionist curricula, correct?
2: Mm-hmm. They do, um, and I think, but I think one of the important places to start with your question is that they also uh, organize to uh, lobby legislatures and ensure almost complete autonomy for homeschools. So there's, in most states, there's very little regulation of Christian homeschools. And that was a hard won victory by uh, homeschooling and Christian schooling advocates based in the argument that education is a family obligation and that it is not um, value neutral and that families, parents, have a First Amendment protected religious liberty right to educate their children however they see fit without the intrusion of civil authorities, And that's all sort of Reconstructionist language and effort and organization that built that. Um, going back to Rush Dooney in the uh, 1970s, going into court cases and text, testifying as an expert witness about how education is really religious, right? So this is this is part of this influence that he's had that people are unaware of. So as a, as a wonderful example, these days with the pandemic, people are thrown into homeschooling because they have to be, and they don't know what they're doing, and they don't know they haven't um, they never intended to homeschool, right? Um, But they're doing it often without any oversight or regulation. And in that regard, they are being influenced by the framework that Rush set up, because there would be regulation if if the Christian Reconstructionists hadn't effectively argued that it's a violation of religious freedom. So this is one of the ways that people are living out a life that Rush work touched, but they remain unaware of it. It is also true that early Christian school um, uh, curriculum was often made by Christian Reconstructionists and made articulating Christian Reconstructionist ideas, like the approach of sphere sovereignty, for example. Um, So Gary DeMar wrote um, the God and Government series, which was a workbook series about the relationship between civil government and God. He uses that three-part theory and that that three-part approach to understanding uh, the delegation of God's authority made its way into these workbooks that became Christian school and then Christian homeschool and Sunday school curriculum. So that's that's how it just sort of worked its way out there. And so, you know, somebody could go to a a homeschooling convention and pick up that book about God and government and say, oh, this is kind of interesting. And, you know, they might be you know, moderately conservative evangelical types. They've never heard of Rush Duny. They don't know where this comes from. Um, they don't know that they don't even necessarily know the kind of broader perspective in which it is embedded.
0: One of the things in your book that is very interesting to me is you you actually do visit some of these conferences. Some are dedicated to things like creationism and some uh, mm-hmm. are are tied to other things like homeschooling. Within these events, what what you remark upon is that sometimes, especially in particular, something like the creationism event, some of the things that are said are not necessarily in order to, not to persuade an entire audience, but to persuade a particular audience. Mm -hmm. And that the sort of things that are said are more comments to a particular group, um, and it actually just feeds into the sorts of messaging they've already received.
2: Well, I think that... um... One of the things I wrote about particularly about the creationist conference, um, you know, I'd been around creationism for a long time. And what struck me at that conference wasn't the viewpoint that they were articulating. Um, And I'm increasingly of the view that this is a better way to look at religion anyway. I'm not sure it's about the beliefs. I think what was going on at that conference and it was the t- the name of it was something like demand the evidence or something like this right. right and there was none of that going on what they were doing was ritual practice they were there they came together with like-minded people to hear speakers with whom they already agreed in order to create this sense of community of like-minded people mm-hmm. that's what they were doing. It was the ritual and the like-mindedness that was the point the 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 creationist beliefs and in, 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 and you know you listen to these people and they have it all down how this all worked and everything and you think, why would somebody be so invested in you know this kind of non-scientific alternative narrative about the origins. Oh. My turn. Excuse
0: me. Yeah, this is. Origins, remind me. This is uh, podcasting in a pandemic right here. We each have some uh, dog issues, and they're just happening on the air a little bit. So.
2: I don't know. You can't leave mine in here if you're not going to leave yours in there, though. Squirrels, squirrels. Um, so anyway, it's not really about the origins of the universe, I don't think. It's about a ritual reenactment of this alternative to science that puts them in this oppositional temperament, in this oppositional relationship to the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Um, in here, at the very core of the way these people understand the world is that they are in tension with it. They, are, they have to be the faithful remnant. They have to be persecuted or else they're not doing it right. And so they've got to create these ways in which they do things that the rest of us think are nuts. Creationism serves as one of those things. And what they were doing at that conference was, was more ritual than it was an exchange of ideas. Right.
0: And to your point, much of that is the, the reason why creationism matters is because it all matters because if all of it isn't true, then none of it's true.
2: That's true. Um, I think there's more to it than that, though. Um, so, at the bottom, we you know we talked about presuppositionalism, but we kind of did that as inside baseball. We did, we? yeah. We didn't explain that. So, so presuppositionalism in the Rush Genie version that can be readily packaged for for popular consumption is that is the idea that all knowledge is based in presuppositions. Rush Genie asserted that there are only two possible places from which to begin reasoning. Mm -hmm. One is God's revelation and one is the presumption of the autonomy of human reason. So there's the truth, there's God's law, there's God's revelation, there's biblical Christianity as they understand it in a biblical worldview. And there's everything else all in a bucket, all the other world religions, all the philosophies, all the political views, all the things that are, all the people who just say, I don't even care about this, right? Everybody who thinks that they're, that, they should submit these claims to their own rationality are placing their reason higher than God. And they are in that category. So presuppositionalism is you have to start from one of those two frameworks. Okay. Creationism begins by saying, which of the frameworks is it? Is it the revelation in Genesis or is it some other story? So it comes right back to that presuppositionalism and it, it creates that divide, and it, it reinforces the choosing of a side mm-hmm. when it comes to knowledge. Right. Um,
0: My professor, who was very big on presuppositions, would always not always, but in many of his lectures, would say the phrase "In the beginning, God," and say that, <laughs> and those are the, you know, that's how the Bible well, starts. that's it, and, right? And that's it, you know. Uh, and that, to him, was was a a very basic statement of faith. And of those sorts of the importance of presuppositions, because if one does not begin with God, then where do you begin?
2: And, and you know, this sounds like this kind of fine little theoretical point, but it results in things like in this world, um, um, you know, if, you, if you're grappling with some sort of mental illness, seeking um, therapy from a therapist whose work is not grounded in Biblical law is, is practicing humanism, right? So, I mean, when they say everything is divided this way, they literally mean everything like medicine, like everything is divided this way. Um, this is how you get this, this theological approach to American history instead of a historical approach because history is no longer an effort to think about the social forces and change over time as kind of as almost a social science and, you know, kind of social science and humanities together. It's no longer that it's actually the effort to tell the story of God's hand in history. It it comes down to something completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that's how presuppositionalism works. And it runs through all of this stuff.
0: How have reconstructionists tried to make American exceptionalism and the Christian tradition sort of combine them in a way that might not be recognizable to people that are outside of this sort of group, um, because it is, it does provide a type of cohesion and a coherence, but mm-hmm. it's not a type of history that many other historians would agree with.
2: Right, right. Um, so the real center hardcore Christian reconstructionists probably don't claim any kind of American exceptionalism, because The whole whole of creation is God's, right, and is all required to ultimately submit to the authority of God. Um, And in fact, even on notions about sort of you know democracy as making as you know bringing about freedom and things like this, Christian Reconstructionists aren't really small d democratic. it seems to me, they, they don't use this language, but it seems to me that the form of government that, seem, that fits them best is actually monarchy um, with the divine right of kings as a, as a kind of delegation of authority. Um, they don't believe in social equality. Um, you know, it's much, of the, much of the theology on which Rushduni relied to build his own system comes from Southern Presbyterianism in the pre-Civil War era. Mm. Um, so when I say equality, I don't. You might have thought that I meant um, gender equality, um, and certainly they are patriarchal without a doubt. In fact, usually you think of that as a as language that a kind of feminist scholar would use to describe somebody. Oh, they're patriarchal, but in fact, that's actually the language that they use themselves. They call themselves patriarchal. They think that's a good thing. Right. Um, and they so they also believe that that human beings are ordered hierarchically by God. And so the idea that some would be lesser and end up as servants of others uh, is in no way, um, in fact, uh, a calls egalitarianism a heresy. So um, I don't see the reconstructionists really embracing an idea of um, American exceptionalism, but see Christian nationalism could be something else, right? Uh, Christian nationalism is, you know, the idea that there are tools in the American system that make it uh, amenable to the building of a Christian society, according to these folks. Um, and working toward that might might build to a kind of Christian nationalism. Hmm. And they certainly want America to be a Christian nation, if that's what we mean by this.
0: Um, so those that are based here in the United States would want to seek for those certain political and social ideals to be realized in the political and public sphere, even though they believe yes. in these spheres and they believe mm-hmm. that family should have so much sway and, and have so much under its sphere of sovereignty, they still see the public sphere and the civil government as a means to achieve those ends, correct?
2: Yes, um, although mostly those ends are dismantling ends, right? Um, they don't see the civil government. So for example, they see it as necessary to ultimately undermine and then eliminate public education. So there's disagreement among them over things like um, voucher systems, for example, mm. because it, it isn't a public function to fund education appropriately, according to them. And so if you're using tax dollars to fund your Christian school, are you, which, is, which are you doing more of? Are you doing more of the dismantling of public education or are you perpetuating the public funding of something that the public shouldn't be funding? Right? And so they have, they're weighing those two different things. And they, they sometimes disagree over whether or not that's a good idea to have public funding for Christian schools.
0: Hmm. What are their sort of strategies in which they try to get their, their goals realized in a, in a tangible way?
2: So this is also complicated, right? Because there's no specific they, right? So certainly Rushdie never ran for public office. Uh, his uh, son-in-law and what was his heir apparent at one point never ran for public office, right? So the big sort of theoretical theologians and thinkers in the movement don't run for public office. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on who you mean by they. Sure. Um, but at the same time, you have you have people all over the country who are running for public office who put up platforms that explicitly articulate these kind of viewpoints. Um I'm not I'm not getting names at the moment, but but they're easy to find, right? Um every once in a while there's some something in the news about somebody running for the state house and I don't know in in Georgia or, I, there's a, or there's one in Oregon, I think, right? Who say wild, crazy things, you know, like wives aren't, like you can't rape your wife. It's not possible. So we shouldn't have marital rape laws, right? You have, you have somebody who says something like this. And when you dig into the viewpoints that they have, they are echoing all of these kinds of things that Christian reconstructionists say. Now that doesn't make Christian reconstructionists responsible for them necessarily. I'm not trying to claim whose fault they are. I'm interested in the, the kind of, maybe like something like a sociology of knowledge, right? How do these ideas and this framing of the world go from this place to, the, to get spread out into, into the rest of the country? So, um, the, so the first answer to your question is there's no real they. So it's hard to ask, answer, how do they do this? But the second answer to your question is one of the they's, Gary North, did a series called the biblical blueprint series, which is a series of books that he edited. Uh, and I have a chapter on that series in my book, because if you ask the question, so a different way to frame your question that I can, that is easy, more easily answered is what would a biblical world look like as they understand it? Right. And North took, uh, um, I think there's 13 or 14 volumes in this series and on each topic, he brought in a Christian reconstructionist thinker to do an analysis. So there's one on public schools, there's one on money and banking, there's one on charity, there's one on how churches should be organized, there's one on church and state, right? So he's so in this way they have articulated what they think a biblical worldview would look like in each of these instances. But they don't all agree. Um, and as I'm trying to think, there's no one in that list of authors that I'm aware of who has run for public office. But so interestingly, one of the authors, uh, Ray Sutton in that series, one of the authors wrote, a, his version was called, his, his edition was called Who Owns the Family? And it's about family authority. So Ray Sutton didn't run for office. He's the pastor He wrote this little book Part of the biblical blueprint series, but you know who read his book and used it is Bob McDonald, who was governor of Virginia. Wow! And he had a ma- he did a master's thesis, and the framework was Sutton's, and he cited Sutton in his bibliography and his footnotes. So you see, he Sutton wasn't running for public office, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think so. Actually, I even have a third answer to this question, and the third answer is that something that people don't adequately recognized with Reconstructionists is the the time horizon with which they work. They don't think in terms of this election cycle. They think in terms of 200 years, 400 years, 1,000 years, right? So when they think about bringing all of society uh, under the authority of biblical law, they don't mean in a couple of years. They mean sometime in the next 1,000 years, right? So. Another answer to your question is they have this vision for what it will look like in a thousand years, and they have a recognition of what it looks like now and where they might work in the context of the civilization that we live in to move it to becoming more like what they want it to be like. So I think all three of those things are true.
0: Right. And I appreciate the way in which you unpacked my question. And this is why it's so fascinating to talk to you about this, because it is a movement, but it's not one that is like when people have difficulty talking about something like evangelicalism, it's lots of things, yeah. lots of things fall under that broader category. And I appreciate the mm-hmm. the way in which you, you articulated that because that that's what makes it hard to even have these sort of even introductory conversations about things because you have to do so much work in order to, to contextualize it. And sometimes I I feel like it unintentionally serves the purpose of, sort of obfuscating necessary work or being able to talk about things. But I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to take my broad question and and bring it to those points. But
2: One of the things we always do in religious studies is we start with, what do you mean by that word? <laughs> it is annoying. It is. Right. But but one of the insights of my academic discipline is that the way we classify things matters. Right. And it shapes the outcome that we understand, how we understand things on the other end. Absolutely. And so we do all my students roll their eyes what do you mean by religion?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that—that that is something I've heard other um, people say is like even the, the study of religion, and like there's not even a, a set definition for it, that sort of thing. Oh, there
2: isn't. No, yeah. no, no. It's deeply, and it may not even be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> we fight. Religious studies people talk about this all the time. Yeah. Every class starts with that.
0: <laughs> what is your your outlook here now in 2020, we're in the midst of everything that 2020 encompasses the, the way in which someone could speak with a, a reconstructionist and find some purchase with them. Uh- oh, <laughs> there's so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I,
2: I don't, I, I don't know that you can, I, I, yeah, I just don't know that you can. Um, If anybody's ever had tried to have a discussion with, I don't know, a a hardcore Ayn Rand libertarian, or Mm -hmm. I don't know, sometimes we call them dude bros. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you've ever had that, tried to have a conversation with one of those kind of people, Mm you realize that like uh, the system itself. Has built within it all kinds of mechanisms to re, to allow the rejection of any contrary information. So um, I if I, I just don't I don't see. I mean, if you want to sharpen your debate skills, or if you, yeah, I don't I I, I don't see just that kind of discussion with these folks as being productive. Um, but I think more important, and I, I wouldn't, uh, it's, it seems like a waste of time unless you find it entertaining and some people do. But um, I, there again, there are a lot of people who are influenced by this stuff that don't know that they are and they don't recognize it and they don't know the implications of it. And those people on the other hand, I think that there's a, there's a, a lot of room mm-hmm.
1: um,
2: for helping them see uh, a different way of looking at things. Um, you know, so one of the very basic ideas, and I suppose, yeah, one of the very basic ideas is that um, this, is a, this is a biblicist system. This is a Protestant Christian system that is dependent on an, um, a, an, an inerrant, authoritative biblical text.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's a logical problem there because without the tradition the tradition of the church without the apostolic authority that the early church claimed for itself that then later kind of got divided between the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox but long before there were any Protestants those churches got together and claimed authority from God to decide which books should count in this biblical text mm-hmm. and those churches still claim to have teaching authority to help the faithful Understand the meaning of those texts, and it's it's completely illogical to accept their apostolic teaching authority for the purpose of selecting the text, but then just out of the blue saying, "But you can't. But your claim that you should help me understand what it means, I'm going to just reject that one." There's no logical reason to accept one of those and not the other. So you either then come to the conclusion that the biblical text isn't what you were told it was or that you become a Catholic. But the biblicist, orthodox, conservative Protestantism has got this kind of logical flaw at the core of it, in Mm -hmm. my view.
0: Interesting. Well, Julie, I really enjoyed talking to you about this very difficult sort of topic to untangle. Reconstruction and people like Rush Dooney have had this sort of immense influence that is sometimes hard to trace. And I'm thankful that, that you were able to talk through a couple of the examples of the ways in which this type of movement and these types of teachings have manifested here in America, especially.
2: Well, thank you, Blake.
0: Yeah, thank you. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your book?
2: Well, um, I'm on Twitter, at Julie Ingersoll. That one's easy. Uh, I'm on Twitter too much. <laughs> are we all right?
0: We all are. We're all stuck inside.
2: <laughs> the book is Oxford University Press, 2015. It's called "Building God's Kingdom Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction," and uh, your local independent bookstore can order it for you, or it's at Amazon.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining me today. Thanks, Blake. And that'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave LaFever and Jake Lewis. If you enjoy this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. You can also support the show by signing up for a paid prescription to my newsletter, The Post Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Listeners can get 25% off a subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and on Instagram at BRChastain underscore. Talk to you soon.